that simple hymn is really fits well with uh, our study in the book of Jude. Uh, it's a simple response of a believing heart that we would want to trust in Jesus. We're returning this morning to our study in the book of Jude after taking a break during the Advent season when we focused our attention on the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, who Paul, as writing to Timothy, said was manifested in the flesh. We looked at the importance of that simple truth and the impact that that truth has upon our everyday lives. We are still really in the introductory part of our study in Jude, verses 1 through 4, and we come this morning to verse 4, which is a summary statement regarding the false teachers. What we will see over the coming weeks, Lord willing, in our study of Jude, will focus all of our attention upon these teachers. He will describe them in various ways by using several examples from the Old Testament and even beyond the Old Testament as to how we're truly to understand them. That will take us all the way through verse 16, and then in verse 17, as we get to that, it turns everything to the application of these things to the people to whom he's writing. Thus far, we have learned much in our study, I trust. We've learned a little bit about Jude. He is the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ, and yet, not willing to stand on that reputation, he instead describes himself, you see in verse 1, as a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. His view of himself is very important, how he sees himself before the Lord and in relationship to his Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. And then he writes to those who are the called ones here in verse uh, 1 as well, who are beloved in God the Father and who are kept for the Lord Jesus Christ. These are wonderful statements of encouragement to a people that he's going to talk to them about the dangers that are abounding all around them. And he wants them to understand at the outset that they are a people who are safe in God's care. And then he pronounces upon them a great blessing. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Not simply one, but two, three, and multiplied out to sufficiency as to their needs as well. What Jude does in the coming verses then, in verse 3 and 4, of course, is really the heart of the letter. It is the reason why he changed the purpose of his letter. He initially, as you remember was going to write them, simply rejoicing together with them in their common salvation. And this common salvation, this faith once for all delivered unto the saints, is a substance. It's something of substance. There is a content to this faith. And Jude simply wanted to rejoice with them in everything that God had done for them through Jesus Christ. And so the doctrines of our faith, the teachings that we have in all of the scriptures. He intended to rejoice with them in it. And yet he was persuaded for a good reason that he would lay aside that initial uh, intent and to focus his attention instead on warning them, warning them about the false teachers who had crept in unnoticed among the people. And so as he calls them to contend, it's in the context of these false teachers They're really doing battle. As one writer said, Jude is here putting the church of the Lord Jesus Christ on a war footing. This is a great battle. This is a battle of life and death. This is eternity or damnation. And so he carefully and 
faithfully warns them of what is to come. In studying this week, I was reminded of a famous quote that I heard, as you have perhaps as well, many years ago. Sun Tzu, who was a famous ancient Chinese warrior and philosopher, wrote the book called The Art of War about 2,500 years ago. It's really a standard in many of our military academies with regard to how they study uh, the art of war or the practice of war. It was greatly admired by many politicians, businessmen, military, and especially in our modern day even. His original masterpiece, as one writer notes, outlined the warfare strategies that are applicable not only for the military, but also for business and for security. One of his famous quotes, perhaps the most famous, is this, Know yourself and know your enemy. A hundred battles, a hundred victories. It means that generals who know themselves and their adversaries will triumph in all its battle. A general who knows only themselves or only their adversaries will surely fail. Sue was saying, I think, and it's important for us to modify it in our context, that we need to know both the truth, here the truth of God's word, the faith once for all delivered unto the saints, and we need to know our enemies. We need to know their tactics, the way in which they fight, in order to have success by the grace of God. So knowing the content of our faith, the body of truth that God has given to us in his word by revelation, and knowing those who are opposed to it, who are desiring to distort it, to pervert it, as Jude says here, to pervert the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Knowing both of these is important, and that is exactly what Jude does in what really is the heart of this book in verses 3 and 4. Our focus, again, is on verse 4, and I will remind you, and this is a good time to remind you as any, you may remember in the sending out of the communion letter in December, I believe it was, my wife, uh, during that week as I was writing that letter, said, why don't we ask the congregation to memorize the book of Jude? It's a short book, 24 verses. We can all memorize it together. Why don't we do that? And so I said, that's a great idea. It's actually 25 verses, but you already knew that. It's 25 verses. It's a whole book of the Bible. Some of you, like us, have already started to memorize it. Perhaps others will join us as we seek to memorize and commit this to our minds as we seek to understand both the truth of God's word and the enemies who stand opposed to it. Please stand as we read our opening verses again. This is really the beginning of Jude, verses 1 through 4. And then we'll pray for God's blessing. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. 
Thus far the reading of God's holy word, all flesh is as the grass, all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, we do pray now as we study your word that your blessing would rest upon us, that your spirit would take that word and press it into our hearts and minds, that we would sense the urgency that Jude wrote with, an urgency to defend and contend for the faith, but also to know the enemies who would seek to subvert it and to destroy it. Grant us every grace. Protect us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. There's a curious and, I admit, a, a very uh, interesting passage in the Old Testament in the account of the prophet Elijah as he comes to meet King Ahab to challenge him to a duel, as it were, on Mount Carmel. Your prophets of Baal, he will tell him, against me, the prophet of Jehovah, the Most High God, which was really a challenge between Jehovah and the Baals, not between a prophet and a king. In the beginning of the 18th chapter of 1 Kings, the prophet Elijah meets up with a whole Obadiah, a servant of Ahab, who was also a God-fearing man who had been sent out by Ahab to look for food for the horses and mules, since there was a great famine in the land at that time. As they meet, Elijah asks Obadiah to take him to see Ahab. Obadiah was obviously fearful for his life and pleaded with Elijah not to ask him to do such a thing. As they continue to talk, this is what the scriptures say. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him, that is, King Ahab, today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. And when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all of Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. God would, of course, confirm these words that Ahab was the real troubler in Israel by an overwhelmingly decisive victory on Mount Carmel. This seems to me, this phrase, which I've always enjoyed, I use it often, sometimes in jest, but it's serious here. This seems to me to be a fitting phrase to describe those whom Jude, of whom Jude now writes. They were surely troublers in Israel, in the church of the living God, the Israel of God, in the house in which he has been pleased to make his dwelling place by his spirit. Like Ahab of old, these ungodly men had taught the people to forsake the commandments of their God and have followed other gods. And they would have gladly called those who stand against them troublers in Israel as Ahab tried to call Elijah. And Jude here was calling the people to action, again, to a holy war, where they would take up the defense of the faith once for all delivered unto the saints, confronting their ungodliness and by demonstrating by holy lives that the Lord God reigns supreme over all and will not tolerate such wickedness in the household of God. 
This is where we're going in our study of Jude. He's going to spend a lot of time talking about these ungodly men, these persons who have crept in unnoticed. There is a a caution as we begin that I want to note here as we study this particular section. We need to be careful, I think, rightly, need to be careful about our assigning people into this category that Jude here identifies. Many of us, as we sit here this morning, have experienced deep hurt by members and leaders within the church. There has been, for many of us, we have seen it, we have witnessed it, abuses of power and authority, rejection, gossip, slander, harsh words spoken, careless actions done. There have been words spoken that have remained in our minds as some of the most cutting of all. And they have come, sadly, from those who confess the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. It's to our great shame, I think, as a church at large, that such things have happened. And it grieves our great God who calls us to love one another and calls us to peace. For some, the great temptation as we read this book is wanting to assign definitively such people who have caused us such great hurt to the same condemnation that Jude here writes. This, I think, is very wrong, of course. Hurts will always exist in the church of Jesus Christ because it is filled with sinners who are saved by grace, people who still occasionally act as sinners more than they do saints. And when we are aware of such hurts, we, of course, are called to repent and to seek peace with our brothers and sisters in Christ. But we dare not play God here and say of those who have caused us such personal hurt, and yet they really don't fit the categories of which Jude here is writing, and therefore they are not worthy of such condemnation. Be assured that God is not mocked. He will judge righteously, including those who have hurt God's people, and those who have done wrong will pay. But we will leave that to the Lord. We'll give a place for wrath, for vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Meanwhile, we are called to be wise and to live in peace with one another. So let us, and this is the caution as we begin, let us be careful how we identify people within the church, allowing Jude's words to stand and being diligent to defend the faith against such blasphemers who deny the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and give opportunity for licentious living, ungodly living, who walk not in the way of Christ, but as Jude himself will tell us, who walk in the way of Cain and Balaam and Korah in their rebellion. And so with that caution that we not sort of take these words and find some delight to condemn those perhaps in our past who have hurt us, and yet don't fit the qualifications of what Jude writes. Let's look at these troublers who have crept into the church. And the first point is this. There are three, of course. The first is the troublers who crept in unnoticed. Notice what Jude says. He says it very clearly, and it's important what he says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed. They've crept in unnoticed. Now, notice how he describes the people, first of all. They're not worthy of anything beyond that terminology, certain people, or as some other versions have, certain men. 
These are those who have crept in. They've done it sneakily, if you will. And this is surely a mark of their wickedness and is worthy of condemnation. Craftiness and deceit mark them out. They don't come in the light. They don't come announcing who they are. They don't come telling us in advance that they're now going to pervert and destroy the grace of God that these people had once heard and believed. Satan never does that, does he? He never appears in the open, as it were, and clearly for everyone to see. He doesn't come with a giant sign indicating that either his intentions or the ends of his ways, which always lead to death, are now before us. He doesn't tempt us with those things that appear to us in the moment to be deadly. And yet the Bible uncovers all of that and tells us that path will always lead to death. But he comes and those who follow him come with deceit and with craftiness. And he comes always to lead us astray, always to lead us away from the truth of God's word. Now that is important. This principle is important in our study of Jude as Jude uncovers this for us. There is always subtlety and secrecy about the ways of false teachers. They're never again out in the open. And this, again, is their great condemnation. They always creep in. They always do so unnoticed, giving the appearance, as it were, that they are just like us, that they believe everything we believe. And so they creep in. They gain our trust. They gain uh, our encouragement. And in doing so, they then turn to seek to lead us astray. The Bible is full of examples of this, full of descriptions of what this looks like. Consider, if you will, the man, the worthless person or wicked man of Proverbs 6. A worthless person, a wicked man, the Lord says, goes about with crooked speech. That's deceitful speech. Winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger. With perverted heart, he devises evil continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. And then these famous words, many of you have memorized them. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brothers. You can see in almost all of those descriptions the deceitfulness, the sneaking in, if you will, the creeping in that Jude here says. Or consider equally as destructive the immoral woman of Proverbs chapter 7, just a chapter later who comes out brashly into the street to claim her prey, and the writer says, which with much seductive speech, she persuades him, and with her smooth talk, she compels him. This is seen not only in the personification of these things in actual uh, deceitful and wicked women, even in our day, but in all of the things related to the deceit of pleasure that our world so elevates in our day. There is a deceitfulness to it. There are smooth words and seductive speech 
that lead us astray into ungodly living. Now, this may explain, but certainly does not excuse the church to whom Jude is writing, that they were able to do this unnoticed. They didn't stand out among the other people. This is why we are to care about the truth, because there are always false teachers abounding, always false teachers in every church that seek to destroy and lead people astray. That's why we're in such an important time in the life of our church. We've nominated and they've gone through training men who are called, they believe, to the office of elder. And in just a few short weeks, you as a congregation will choose men that you believe are men who will earnestly contend for the faith, once for all delivered unto the saints. Again, they've been nominated, they've been trained and now examined for the sacred office of elder. And they, are among all of the officers of Christ's church, are called to defend the flock against false teachers and false teaching. This is a high calling, one we take seriously as a church. That's why we take up to a year to train these men, to study with them, to get to know them, to examine, to test them and then to recommend them to the congregation as men who show themselves to be faithful and who will heed and have heeded the call of Jude to contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered unto the saints. So pray, pray for these men, pray for their time tonight and next week as they share their testimonies, pray for God's leading and direction in all that we will do in a couple of weeks. Well, that's the first point. These troublers have crept in unnoticed, consistent with what Satan always does. Secondly, these troublers, Jews says, are those who were long ago, long ago marked out or designated for this condemnation. These troublers were long ago designated for condemnation. Jude means it was written down, written down long ago. I think what he has in mind because of the examples that he then gives in verses 5 through 16, I think what he has in mind is that the examples of these kinds of men, which have always been present among the people of God, have been clearly written down. And it is, as it were, that when all of these rebels and false teachers were judged and condemned by God in those accounts in the Old Testament... They were standing as the pattern for all who would follow them. So when he says here, there's a sense in which they were designated long ago for this condemnation, I think that's the primary sense in which he is speaking. Now, of course, we have the the bigger picture, the understanding that God, before the foundation of the world, chooses a people that he will save, and of necessity others that he will not and those are clearly designated as it were as well for condemnation they live up to everything that God knew in advance having determined from before the creation of the world all things that they would indeed walk in this way we can really then best understand what Jude means by this by looking as we will in the coming weeks in verses 5 especially through verse 13. We'll see several examples from the Old Testament where God punished and condemned the wickedness of a people who strayed from his commandments. 
Think of the times in the Old Testament when God promised the destruction of all of his enemies. We've studied through Isaiah and how many times, especially in the first part of Isaiah 1 through 39, how many times do we see God's promise to punish the wickedness of a people who strayed from his commandments, who are the enemies of God and whom God has indeed condemned. It includes the times of Christ himself when he warned his followers that there would be many who would creep into the church, coming, as it were, in sheep's clothing, but being inside ravenous wolves. It would include, of course, those that Paul speaks of, those and the other apostles who warned the early church that there would be those who would come from within and from among the leaders of the church who would lead the people astray. In the Old Testament reading this morning, you heard read the account of Exodus 32. That is a picture of God's condemnation against those who are leading his people astray. And though God relented of his anger for Moses' sake against that people, his judgment did fall upon them. They were condemned because of their uh, actions. Those who turn, Matthew Henry said, the grace of God into lasciviousness that is, ungodly living, are ordained unto condemnation. They sin against the last, the greatest, and the most perfect remedy, and so they are without excuse. Those who thus sin must needs die of their wounds, of their disease, are of old ordained to this condemnation. And then he says, whatever this expression means. There's great debate about exactly what it means. But I think it ultimately means this connection with all that has preceded them, as well as an understanding that there is a, in the, in the plan of God, the decree of God, that this was ordained from before the foundation of the world. It is similar to what Luke speaks in Acts 2, 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And of what Jesus says about Judas in John 17, which we've just studied. While I was with them, he says, I kept them in your name, which you have given to me. I have guarded them, and not one of them, not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled the one prophesied of old long ago who was ordained and set apart unto this condemnation. These who have crept in unnoticed were not unnoticed by God. He knew of them. He knew of their coming. And he promised long ago of their destruction. Now the third thing they say and the third point is really the most important with respect to uh, our study of these ungodly people or men. They were troublers who did two things. Notice in our text, they were ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and who deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. What does it mean to pervert the grace of our God? To pervert something, according to Noah Webster, means to turn from the truth or from the proper purpose to distort from its true end or its use. What is the grace of God? 
Titus says, the grace of God, or Paul says to Titus, the grace of God teaches us what? To say no to all ungodliness. That is what the grace of God does. To distort that, to twist it, to pervert the grace of God is called antinomianism. Anti-opposed to or against nomos, the law. That which is against the law of God. It teaches that we have a right as Christians to do as we please, to live a life of licentiousness, which means free and ungodly living, a teaching which accepts the grace of God in Christ, but allows the believer, because of the grace of God, to live as he or she pleases. Now, the church, from its beginning, has always been plagued by those who teach such things. As you read your Bible carefully, the New Testament, as Paul writes, as Peter writes, you'll see several places where they reference false teachers, as Jude does here, who pervert and distort the grace of God. Titus 1, for instance, or there are many who are insubordinate. They are empty talkers and deceivers, especially those, he says, of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony, he says, is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Strong words. Describing the same kind of characters creeping into the church unnoticed who are perverting and destroying the grace of God, twisting it as it were. 1 Peter chapter 2, live as people who are free, he says. And the freedom we have in Christ is glorious, a glorious freedom. But don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but live as servants of God. Our freedom does not allow us to live as we please according to the flesh, but rather we are called to live in obedience to him. One writer says this, to be a Christian means being saved from sensuality and to sanctification, from sin and to holiness, to be set free from the bondage of sin and to live in the freedom of a new life. There are things in which, or things in life to which God simply says no. And he does it for our good, doesn't he? All the time, for our good. He knows what is best. We just sang it. I know that God's way is best. And so, Jesus, I want to follow you. In writing on this point, Calvin defends God's wisdom in this way. I think this is a wonderfully insightful comment, as so often true of Calvin. It is bad, he says, to live under a prince who permits nothing. But it is much worse to live under one who permits everything. It's bad to live under a prince who permits nothing, but much worse to live under one who permits everything. 
Brothers and sisters, that's the time in which we're living. We are living under rulers, powers that be or powers that want to be, who want to permit everything. Everything goes. It doesn't matter anymore. There is no such thing as sin, no such thing as God, no such thing of anything that we need to worry about. And we are truly living in our day in that terrible fruit of that terrible, horrible way of thinking at every level of society. In many places, even among those who would identify themselves as Christians, there is an attitude of permissiveness and licentiousness. Anything goes that has echoes of what the Apostle Paul was addressing when he wrote to the Romans in chapter 5 and 6. You remember, we read it. It's so important, so central to what Jude is saying of those who pervert the grace of God. Paul writes at the end of Romans 5, the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, Grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And Paul being such a wise follower of Jesus Christ, inspired by the Holy Spirit, knew exactly what he had to say next. What shall we say then? He anticipated the argument that would come. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? You see the argument, well, if God's grace abounds where sin abounds, then it follows what? The more you sin, the more grace that comes. And so sin, so God's grace can come. You know his answer. By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? This is what Jude is speaking about in our text. But there's more, and I think on one level it relates. They also deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Here I believe for good reason, namely this Greek structure of the sentence, that the translations that we see here are best. It's really one person. It's not Christ and God the Father, as the New King James, I think, tends to lead us to, But it's rather speaking of one, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our only master and Lord. In 2 Peter chapter 2, a a book, as you remember in our opening studies of Jude, has much, almost exactly what Jude writes. And, And so here in 2 Peter 2, but false prophets, Peter writes, also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly, that is, craftily, crept in unnoticed, bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words, Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. God is not mocked. There is no other master, no other Lord, but our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And they desire, as false teachers, to throw off that lordship, to throw off it, even as they confess to receive his grace. They'll receive him as a 
uh, more ancient in our time, back in the 90s, heresy and teaching within the church of our day was taking place, that you can receive Jesus as your Savior, be saved from sin and death and from hell itself, but you need not receive him as Lord. You can live as Savior, live with him as your Savior, but not live under him as your Lord. That is heresy. That is false teaching. That is the same kind of false teaching that Jude here is speaking of, of those who deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is Lord, isn't he? It's so true that those who seek to throw off his lordship are denying their belief in an understanding of the gospel because the gospel places demands upon all of those who would follow Jesus. And we in our sinful hearts simply don't like this, but they are the demands of a king who will rule over his people. This is not merely, I think, a parallel thought that when you deny the grace of God and pervert it, you are in a sense doing that denying of the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's true. They are related in that sense. But that's not merely what this is. This denial of the master and Lord Jesus is really a denial of the person of Jesus, who he is, who he is revealed to be in the the gospel. You remember Peter in Acts chapter 2 as he quotes Psalm 110, as he speaks of Jesus ascending to the right hand of the Father, receiving a kingdom and ruling from heaven over that kingdom and over all things. You remember how Peter ends that part of the sermon. Let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. He has made him both Lord and Christ. You can't deny him as such. To do so is to deny him in his being and person and therefore to deny the salvation that he so freely gives to sinners who will receive him as he is, Master and Lord. Now those are the three things that we see here and they are introductory. They they give us a big picture of what God has revealed through Jude to these people as to how they are to contend for the faith and be warned of these false teachers. Two things as we close, I think two very important things that we'll come back to and I think the text will bear out more and more and over and over again. The first is this, though this verse and the entire book sometimes seems to be focused upon the wicked who had infiltrated the church with their wicked ends in view, thereby giving it for many a very negative tone throughout, something that many have noted who have studied the book, there is still something profoundly positive, profoundly positive about this book and especially this verse because Christ does does reign supreme over his church. He always has, he always will. There's no false teacher, no one who creeps in unnoticed, who can distort the gospel to such a point that the advance of the gospel and the purpose of Christ will not stand. No one can thwart his will, no one can overcome his work by his spirit. That means for the Christian as we read these verses and we know that they're true today as they were in Jude's day, 
we can take great comfort in this fact, that as the church deals with false teachers from within and without, we can rest in the knowledge that our Jesus reigns. He is Lord. He is master not only of his people, but over all things. The Lord knows those who are his. He has also marked out for condemnation and destruction those who seek to do evil within her walls. God is never mocked. He's never mocked. Whatever a man sows, that also shall he reap. And so, Christian, this morning, as you consider these things, and perhaps you're concerned, perhaps even worried about the false teaching that we see so many places within the church, take courage, be of a sound mind with regard to these things. Christ Jesus, indeed, is the only sovereign, and he will have the victory. John Newton, in his great hymn, Though Troubles Assail Us, speaks so beautifully about this. Though troubles assail us, dangers affright, though friends should all fail us and foes all unite, yet one thing secures us whatever betide, the promise assures us the Lord will provide. When Satan assails us or his followers assails us to stop our path and courage all fails us, we triumph by faith. He cannot take from us, though oft he has tried, this heart-cheering promise the Lord will provide. No strength of our own and no goodness we claim, yet since we have known of the Savior's great name, in this our strong tower for safety we hide. The Lord is our power. The Lord will provide. This verse really does give us great hope in the midst of our struggles, even as we contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered unto the saints. It's why I think in the context of the book of Jude, it ends the way he does. After all of the description of these false teachers, some which is very troubling, and we'll get to it as we look together at these verses, but after all of the things he says about them, these troublers in Israel, You see how he ends the book. It's such a beautiful ending. Now to him, he says, to him who is able to keep you, to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. That's the promise. That's the comfort we have. Secondly, the thing to remember by way of application is that what we find in this verse and throughout the book is really a solemn warning to us as well. It's both explicit and implicit. Beware lest you fall into the lies and teachings of such ungodly men who have crept into the broader church in our own day who are sowing the seeds of the church's destruction, as if that were possible. But they surely will lead many astray. This surely is the problem both here and everywhere else in the New Testament. There are many, Paul writes of them, who have made a shipwreck of their their faith by believing these teachings. There's a curious movement I've noted over the years within the church since the time of Christ, And it can be argued even in the time of the church under the Old Testament. It's what I call the third rail of Christianity. Again, I mentioned it in the 90s. It was true. It's true in our day as well. 
You know the idea of a third rail. We should ask John Bartello to tell us all about that with respect to trains. But the third rail, as I understand it, is the exposed electrical conductor that carries high voltage power. Stepping on that high voltage third rail usually results in electrocution, probably almost always. The term is often used in politics where politicians are afraid to talk about a certain subject. Abortion in our day would be one of them. How many politicians do you hear with clarity speak about the subject of abortion? Well, why don't you? They, they sort of back off of it. Why don't they talk about it and what their view is? Because in our culture, it's the third rail of politics. You talk about it, what you really believe about it, and you're in danger of being uh, simply canceled. What I mean by the third rail in Christianity is referring what some people believe as a third way to live the Christian life. The first is follow Christ wholeheartedly, unreservedly, your whole being. The second, of course, with respect to the claims of Christ, is simply to reject him and his claims upon your life. The third is to live your life somewhere in between. In between rejecting him and living wholeheartedly. The problem is there is no third option. There's no third option to this. There's no receiving of his grace, saying that we're his followers, but not living by what he commands and what he says. This is exactly what the false teachers were doing. They were delighting in the grace of Christ, delighting in the gospel, but then going to say, but you can live however you want because God's grace is sufficient to cover it all. Jesus makes undeniable claims upon your life, believer. He does not offer you any middle ground, no third way, no third rail. He says, take up your cross and follow me. To create a third way is to reject him and to be marked out for condemnation. Either we are his for him or we are against him. Either we are his for him or we are against him. So it's fitting as we close to press the point home this morning. Are you for Christ or are you against him? Does your life right now indicate one way or another? I'm not speaking about a fact or a life that will continue to, or that will never sin. We're all going to sin, struggle, fall short of what he commands us. But I'm speaking of the orientation of your life. Those on Wednesday nights know what I'm talking about because it's all over 1 John. I'm speaking about the desires of your heart. What do you want? I'm speaking about what it is that you long for with respect to your relationship with Christ. Is it to follow and love Christ with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Is it to offer yourself as a living sacrifice to him daily because of his mercies to you? Is it to be daily transformed by his grace? Grace transforms. It transforms us into the likeness of Christ. Is it to live according to his commandments, to delight in his law and in his ways, to find that his commandments are not, as John says, burdensome? Is it daily to repent of your sins and to trust in him anew? Or, and I love this illustration, those of you who may remember it, I used it way back in 2009 when I preached before through the book of Jude. 
from the life of Martin Luther. You'll remember it, I trust. During the years 1515 to 1516, Martin Luther was teaching his students through the book of Romans. He would gather them twice a week, Monday and Friday, at 6 a.m. As he came across the passage at the end of chapter 5 and beginning in chapter 6, the one I just referenced and that we read earlier, his students asked him the question that the Apostle Paul anticipated in the verses. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Noting how directly Paul here speaks of the Christian's liberty through the gospel, asked Luther, this, they said, seems to suggest that because of the nature of God's grace, that a Christian can simply live as he wants. Is that true? Can a Christian do what he wants? Luther, wanting to press the point home further, immediately said to his students, yes, yes, you are free now in Christ to do as you please. You are free to do whatever you want. And then you know the illustration. After pausing so as to drive the nail of truth home in their hearts, he then asked this question. Now, tell me, what do you want? What do you want? You see, for these false teachers, it didn't matter. They wanted their sexual sins. They wanted their licentiousness. And they wanted the grace of God. But to the Christian whose life is transformed by his grace, what you want is changed. What you want and desire is different because of the grace of God. And so I press the question home to you now. What is it this morning that you want? Let us pray. Father, that question haunts all of us and is asked of all of us every day. Every moment of every day when we struggle against sin and make the choice to be obedient to Christ or to follow in the path of sin, that question is before us. What is it that we really want? Your grace transforms us so that we want what is pleasing and right. We want to obey Jesus. Grant us the grace then that we might all the more faithfully follow after him. Protect us from false teaching, false thinking. Protect us from the enemy who creeps in not only to our churches, but into our very hearts. Protect us from ourselves as we seek to justify all kinds of things. And by your grace, we pray, keep us fast and holding on to Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Amen.